0: As you saw, this is Take Fountain. We've got a great show for you today. If you've ever wondered, when you're watching TV, <laughs> and they're kicking down the door, and they got the gun in their hand, and you're going, I don't, does it really happen like that? Is that? That seems sort of forced. I'm not sure that seems... Is that real? I always wondered these things. Uh, I was talking with my, my uh, 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 co-host here, uh, Tom Mount, many times about this, and I said, how does that happen? He says, well, you know, there's a guy. There's a guy that they go to, And he tells us what's real and what isn't real. And he's been the go-to guy for the DEA for, what, decades now, I'm guessing? Yes. And you've used him in movie after movie, as has everyone. And this is our opportunity to meet him. Uh, Explain who we have on the show today.
1: We are very lucky to have the always uh, entertaining and wonderful and smart John Marcello. John Marcello, graduate of the University of... Wisconsin and Bill you have informed me that those are the Th- badgers. They're the badgers. Yeah, what yeah. the fuck is a badger? No, yeah, it's a badgers. Yeah, by yeah. the way I
0: said there were badgers and everybody around here said I was lying shows you how what great football fans we have here <laughs> anyway, uh,
1: so in any event John is going to join us and walk through a bunch of the films he's worked on television and films and Talk a little bit about the reality and the difference between policing actual policing and what you see in general in commercial entertainment.
0: So, so how did, let's start with this. Hi, John, by the way, I'm not trying to ignore you. Nice to have you with us. Nice to be here. Um, you, how did you two meet exactly? How did that work out?
2: Well, <laughs> Tom, I, I sort of remember us meeting in a post uh, 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 facility when you were working on Tequila Sunrise.
1: That was our first face-to-face meeting, John, but we met yeah. on the phone oh, when we were trying that. to figure out um, Scarface.
0: Scarface.
2: Yep. No, absolutely. That's right. Because you
1: sent me to all the right people in Miami and Oliver Stone. And that made the entire thing work.
0: See, So you I made you made Scarface. I'm going to keep jumping in here. You made Scarface. And Scarface was basically the, the, the original Scarface with the Howard Hawks thing, which was about Capone, right? Right. But that the Scarface that you did with uh, Pacino and Joe Pfeiffer and others, Uh, 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 That was about the Miami drug trade, I guess. Cuban-Miami connections and things of that nature. John
1: did a masterful job of hooking us up with the right people to decode the cocaine cowboy invasion of Miami. Okay. And that was a major drug event, major policing event, and uh, Oliver and I went to Miami and spent a few weeks, and we saw amazing things.
0: So Oliver Stone is writing this this that's correct and he's ta- and he goes to Miami and, and you go to Miami and do what exactly you like knock on the door of drug dealers. I, mean, I don't <laughs> understand what what is it you do exactly that to, to helps you understand what this world of uh, uh, what's his name Tony Montana was. was well, that's this? right Tony Montana.
1: Montana so John has to explain Frank Torello to us
2: right well f- first of all when Tom first spoke to me and told me the project that they wanted to create I thought it was terrific. I'd had, we'd been uh, overrun with the Marielitos from Cuba because these were mostly prisoners in Cuba that weren't political prisoners. These were just real crooks. And uh, they, they, uh, they filtered into Miami uh, in, the, in the 80s, early 80s. And they took over the, basically they took over uh, and were the most violent people there in uh in Miami and I ran into him a lot in LA because they would bring their drugs to LA and we didn't encounter them in my work so when Tom said he was going to do this I thought it would be really a good project to highlight what was going on in Miami and LA at this time and uh as a result uh I put him in touch with uh, an associate of mine named Frank Tirallo, who was like the deputy special agent in charge of the miami field division for like 20 years and he was terrific knew everybody and frank said i'll take care of him and so oliver and tom went down there and frank took care of them
1: <laughs> yeah. and i will say john that was an eye-opening experience for oliver and i we were innocent honestly when we started that project about the intensity of the drug trade and frank and a very young uh, DEA guy, his name I cannot remember right now, but who is very very nice, but he basically, Frank said, take these guys around and show them everything. So the next thing I know, we're meeting with some guys who are drug dealers, and then we meet with people who are cops, and then we meet with judges, and then we meet with reporters, and then we meet with bankers, and then we meet with some guy who has an airplane rental operation. Uh, somewhere down around Homestead, who's making all of his money shipping drugs in and money out. And, and, And that turned into several weeks of astonishingly authentic inside material. And I won't bore you right now, but we might hit on a couple of the things we encountered during that adventure.
0: When people come to you, John and they say I want to do a thing Uh, you must watch television by the way all the time and go that it would never happen that way it would never happen do you do you you see that or is it or is that is it over now now does everybody kind of get it right
2: I think people are getting it right more now than ever uh in the beginning it was just sort of a a hit and miss but the the good directors the good writers they would always always want to know how we do things and you know, within our parameters, uh, DEA was—I worked for the Drug Enforcement Administration. And we were happy to uh, cooperate because we wanted to see it right too. We didn't want to see our agents like pulling out a gun and shooting like a gangster, and sure, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, so we would be there to help them and answer their questions and. You know, I talked to hundreds of writers. I didn't care if it was, uh, uh, you know, a, a real visible name or if it was just some kid that called me right out of film school and said, hey, I'm trying to write a screenplay. I was glad to help him take 10 minutes to talk to him on the phone. You know, that's how it started with me. Just I was sort of the DEA guy that answered the phone for those people.
0: So do, you, do you remember, I'm sorry, do you remember your first film, the first one they called you in and said, hey, would you help us with this movie? What was what was that?
2: Well, I think it was uh, I had a I had a friend named Gil Parra that was a sheriff's homicide right. detective, and he was, if you saw the movie uh, Freebie and the Bean, yes. uh, Gil Parra was both Freebie and the Bean. Okay, <laughs> Jimmy Conn <laughs> and Alan Arkin, and and, and uh, Gil worked with Floyd Mutrix, who uh, who who wrote that that film, and get, and Floyd uh, Floyd was going to set, so was setting out on a new project. Uh, about prison gangs and la MA in Los Angeles and it was called America Me. Yes. It made right away, but we worked on this film in the 70s, okay? And uh he worked on the script and he, we were able to take Floyd and put him into our prison gang task force in Monterey Park, California. And Floyd had complete access in there. Interviewed with the guys, listened to the uh, informants come in and talk, and so I think uh, that was our first big thing that we did, or I did, right with with Hollywood was American Me. Now, Ma-
0: American Me was a very scary movie. A very felt oh, yeah. very real. I mean, I, I I remember that.
2: Oh yeah, right. So and it was uh, it was really wonderful. And Floyd Floyd got he he got the part about a thirteen year old kid gets arrested and goes to Palm Hall and never gets out of prison and dies in prison. And in the meantime, this, this young man was trying to uh, organize, politically organize within the prisons, and of course, unfortunately, became a criminal enterprise called La M.A. or the Mexican Mafia. Right. And Floyd was able, he was right there on, on the forefront of it, and was able to do that story.
1: <clears throat> so, John, I just before we go any further, I want to back up for just a second about the history of John Marcello. Okay. Because it's amazing. So, John... After you finished being a badger at the University of Wisconsin, <laughs> right. um, You went. Did you went into the service? Didn't you?
2: Right. I was in. Um, I was in the uh, Army, and uh, I was a second lieutenant, uh, first fr- and a first lieutenant when I when I got out. I had to do uh, a year overseas in Vietnam, and um,
1: and John. Came- so let me, without giving anything away, let me say that that sounded a lot like military intelligence to me. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I worked, I was the second, I, I was commissioned as a infantry platoon officer, and I got very lucky, because when I hit Vietnam, somebody came into Benoit Air Base and said, Marcelo, I said, yes, how would you like to go to a military intelligence unit? And I said, I think I'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> so so, so I went there, and, uh, and, and I was blessed in that I didn't have any serious issues in Vietnam, and we worked, basically, almost, um, we were in civilian clothes a lot. We just worked there. And, yeah. um,
1: and I, uh, so without, again, without giving too much away, let me just say your job was to, let's say, influence the situation around the war. Would that be fair?
2: Well, of course, you know, we're trying to, and basically trying to dig and find out who's who and, and how we can use various assets to assist us in our mission, you know.
1: Yeah, and so that started you down the horrible path. Of, de- <laughs> of detective work, which is effectively what you've done all your life in one way or another, but when you got out of the military, as I remember, you found yourself on an airplane.
2: Right. I um I was um I I didn't know what I was going to do. I was going to either go to business school or law school. I got accepted at business school at USC, and I went for a month, and I decided that wasn't for me. So I thought I'd go to law school. In the meantime, I needed to eat, and uh, a friend of mine told me about this brand new program called sky marshal program that uh, nixon formed in 1971 i believe it was and i jumped on board i was hired right away within four weeks i was in training for four weeks back in in uh, dc and i then became a sky marshal and traveled all over uh never had an incident thankfully and uh right made it made it through but it was a lot of fun met a lot of nice people
1: right and it
2: took me to my next position because um uh, that program was being managed by the customs agency and uh, the sack of the customs agency came to me after a year and said hey how would you like to be a, a special agent with us customs so I so said, why not i'm not in school yet i might as well do that and then uh i i worked for customs for a couple of years and then nixon again he liked forming i guess agencies so he formed the drug enforcement administration and he combined 1,500 Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous St- Drugs agents and 500 Customs agents into this new outfit. So I was a charter member of the DEA. And that was 1973.
0: I can't wow. believe that DEA has only been around since 19— I, I, I don't remember life before the DEA. I know. Um, <laughs> so were you were you undercover a fair amount, or did you never do that?
2: No, I, I worked undercover as a young man. Okay. Uh, and then uh, as I, you know, as my roles changed within DEA, the need for an old guy like me to go undercover wasn't, <laughs> wasn't in high demand. Was,
0: was that um, uh, frightening at times?
2: Oh, of course. You know, you're always, if you're not frightened, you're not really very smart about what you're doing. You got to be a little bit afraid. Of, Give me an
0: example of something that was frightening. Tell me some, something, of the, or, or if you can. I don't know, maybe you're not well, allowed to talk about some of this stuff.
2: You know, for me, not per- for me personally, it wasn't horrible, but it was always horrible when I had my partners in compromising positions, you know, where they go into a location and they're by themselves, and you, you're only 30 seconds away, but things can happen in 30 seconds, and uh, uh, there was an incident where uh, an LAPD officer who was uh, working with us, the feds, up in Santa Monica, and he was in the Holiday Inn up there and uh, they were counting the money. It was like a $200,000 exchange and we were gonna buy the drugs so we had the money. And uh, the bad guy counted the money twice and then he asked to be excused to go to the bathroom in the hotel room and he came out of the bathroom and shot and killed our undercover agent. And, uh, And we were outside in the next room, we were right there. And that's the, that's the kind of stuff that, that could happen and did happen. <clears throat> yeah.
0: And you, and I, I, I assume that you, whenever, since that particular scenario, I mean, when you, as you're describing it, I think, I think I've seen that in movies like a hundred times. So you, so, so you're looking at, at, at scripts and saying, this is how it works. This is how it happens. And you work on things like with Michael Mann, if I'm my, if I'm correct here, you work with Michael Mann on, um, heat right is that is that one, of them, one well, of them
2: yeah the only thing that i did with michael michael works with a lot of people he's uh he he wants to know everything about every character yes and so he you know when he had pacino he put me with pacino because pacino was the cop and then de niro he put with gilpara yeah because <laughs> right. uh, Parra was a sheriff but he was an expert on the jails and he could bring de niro to uh two criminals in the jails that he could interview yeah. and, 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 and learn from. So, yeah. And Michael had many people, you know, they had SWAT team members. They had um, police. He, he must've had 30 people working on that film. He, so, <clears throat> so
0: if you're working on the film and, and you're sitting there with Pacino, is he asking you stuff? Are you telling oh, him things? What, what, what well, what's, what's exactly happening? I just yeah, don't I, would, fool, I, want, I want you to paint the picture of what exactly you do for a movie.
2: No, actually with that particular movie, I have been on, I'll, I'll tell you about the Pacino. It's just basically in a hotel room because you can't go anywhere with Pacino. Everybody knows them, you know? Yeah. So, I, so when Michael brought him to me, we were, we were in a private room, but he wanted to know everything about, you know, every detail of my investigations, how I worked them, how I interviewed people, what I did after I arrested people, when I went home, uh, how did you unwind? uh, his you know so it was like that now we worked with michael mann on drug wars the camarena series it was a six hour mini series right. um uh, that uh actually we won the best mini series that year uh and that was about the kidnapping and murder of our agent kiki enrique kiki camarena and uh, michael i i was michael asked jack lawn the administrator of our agency if i could be with them from day one before one word was written so I worked with them, uh, you know, writing when they were writing, I worked with them as a technical advisor. I worked with the actors. I was on the set every day, but that, that was a rarity for me because I usually didn't have the time. Right. I was, yeah. You know, I'm really a special agent with DEA. I have to go out there and arrest people. You know? sure. So, you know, so I didn't have, I didn't have my life to dedicate to Hollywood, but I, I did on that particular project because it was so close to home my agency wanted me out there and i was out there yeah.
1: so let's talk for just a second about gil para um i met gil uh and and met you through gill and floyd mutrix the director writer director knew Gil. i don't know how exactly and as i remember john one evening we ended up in a disreputable larry flint owned casino somewhere on the edge of orange county giving gill an award and the guy sitting at the table with us was uh, Antonio Villaragosa, who became mayor of Los Angeles shortly thereafter. And Gil was, I believe, the first Latin person to run homicide for the sheriff's department. Is that right? Uh,
2: if not the first, one of the first. But I I, I think he was the first. And he, um, you know, he was wonderful. He just had a good he had the ability to uh, uh, ferret things out and solve problems, and uh, it's a and great. So investment. I
1: just want the audience to know that if you went, if you, if I called Marcelo and I said let's have lunch, he'd say, well I'll meet you at the farmers market, and that would be a little upstairs uh, area at the farmers market where people wouldn't bother you. But then Gil would show up, and then right. the other guy would show up, and I'd say who is that, and he'd say, oh that's the head of the bomb squad. And then there's another guy who would show up, and he's the head of this, and he's the head of that. And pretty soon there's six police officers from all sorts of organizations around the table swapping lies about their lives. <laughs> and uh, it was, as a movie guy, it was heaven.
2: Right.
0: It, they had, had to be eye-opening situations for you. Oh, I mean, no. y- y- you must have been led into things where you went, like, I didn't know this was all going on under my nose. Right. All give me give me examples of, of that the two of you. I mean, you know, well, I,
1: John, will you tell the, briefly the the grandma mafia story?
2: Oh, right, we had um, we had an organization of uh, women from they lived in Beverly Hills and they were grandmothers and uh, they one of the and they were attractive women. You know, they were like in their late fifties, but they were very attractive. Beverly Hills, you know, like housewives, but they weren't married and they uh they met colombian traffickers and they started to carry money only from between Miami and Los Angeles and but they would carry Samsonite suitcases and they would be filled with anywhere from 600 to 800,000 dollars a trip and they did this for like about 3 years before we stumbled onto them and uh started our investigation and uh And uh, it was hilarious. And uh, it was a it was actually it's one of the, I think, best unproduced scripts out there right now. I think.
0: uh, Yeah. How come say how come that isn't a movie? How come you're not making a movie out of that? Because that's a great that's a great idea, isn't it? To to get someone you'd never suspect just carrying around their Samsonite luggage full of 800 grand
2: right and nobody t- nobody would touch them because they they flew first class they were yeah nice nice uh, rich people from beverly hills if anybody did a quick background everything was true you know they were beverly hills housewives basically do you, re-
0: do you remember how you caught them do you remember what the break was
2: yeah i think uh, we were i think we were at the airport yeah one of my guys at the airport i had the airport group for a long time and we did a lot of uh, a dirty word here folks profiling yeah. This is what doc- this is what doctors do when you come in and tell them yes. I got yes. certain issues and they profile. Well, we would profile uh, couriers and uh, people that were drug dealers. And every once in a while, and most of the time it was, uh, you know, we would just walk up to people and say, we're federal narcotics. Do you mind talking to me for a few minutes? And we kind of watching their eyes and watching how they react. And I don't know why one of our guys walked up to one of these, women and asked if they could talk to her for a while and then i guess she started to demonstrate some uh, uh, you know attitude that she didn't want to talk to them and our our response was always let them go in other words don't don't make a scene here at the airport just let them go we'll find out who they are and we'll take a look and that's exactly what happened so it was one of these innocuous um uh, approaches yeah and then she got scared, and our officer was smart enough to know, hey, I'm going to back off of this one, but I'm not going to forget it. And so yeah. came back in the office, and then we start doing work, and we were able to connect them to uh, people that were Colombian drug dealers.
1: So, Bill, I just, uh, having had the experience of walking down a corridor at LAX with John Marcello, <laughs> yeah. that experience is unique because John and his team of people, he, remember that John ran the task force at LAX, was a unique policing organization with a couple of members from five or six different policing organizations all grouped together to run the policing of this entire airport, which is a small city. I mean, it's a massive airport and a lot of people, millions of people and, you know, 52 flights an hour and stuff like that. So you'd walk down the hall with John and he would say, as we pass a group of people, he'd kind of point at someone and say, uh, price fight in Las Vegas tonight. I'd say, how do you know that? He'd say, because those hookers are getting on the Vegas flight. Ah. And then a couple of minutes later, he'd say, uh, guys who don't want to meet us, they're going home, but they don't speak English yet. And they're <laughs> guys who'd come in and dropped off drugs or money, and they were going back. Uh huh. And he would know it and then mm-hmm. they keep and one person after another after another and you realize as you walk by a thousand people in a corridor at LAX 150 of them are crooks you know <laughs> you know that that's a, it's
0: funny when you say that this comes from my mind uh, I don't think that I think the word that we're, uh, <laughs> we civilians in this are really naive about this stuff and and mm-hmm. I did a I did a piece once with uh, David Hartman years ago on cops. And it was like cops before cops, but it was like that. We rode around in a squad car. We did it in Newport Beach. We did it in Houston. We did it in New York and a few other places. But the one in New York, I said, I, it was in the center of, uh, of the, the crack cocaine. It's like 84, 85. You know, uh, uh, crack is, is ravaging the city. And they said, we need to cover this. And I went to the uh, uh, whoever, whatever that department was, and I said, I want you to take me to the worst neighborhood you've got. I want to see the worst examples of what's happening with crack. And he said, OK, meet me tomorrow at uh, 3 in the afternoon at um, um, 89th in Amsterdam. And I said, I live at 89th in Amsterdam. I don't want to, that's not what I, I don't, I mean, I mean the bad areas, you know, the Bronx. And what in my mind was, you know, the Brook, the parts of, he says, no, no, there's no worse area than where you live. <laughs> So, yeah. by, when I arrived, I realized that all these guys that are, had been around me every day, passing on the street and whatever, that they were many of them drug dealers. And mm-hmm. I just hadn't picked up on it. And yeah, we, right. then they confronted somebody and they put something, they, they put a crack in a tennis ball, which I'd never seen before. And they put it in a tennis ball because you can throw it. Right, So you could get rid of it. It could go bounding down the street, down 89th Street toward Columbus Avenue, and then they could run the other way. And, yeah. and, I, and I only bring this up because um, I don't think that people – I think that probably when you went to Miami, if I go to Miami, I think, this is a lovely town, what a great town. You go to Miami with, with you guys, it's like, oh, well, man. Uh, John, John knows well because he's
1: seen it all, but one of the things they took Oliver and I to see in Miami – They took us to a corner and on the corner was a bank. And the guy said, wait just a few minutes. We're sitting there looking around, it's all nice. We don't know what the hell we're doing on the corner by the bank. A car pulls up, it's actually a truck pulls up. Guy gets around the back of the truck, comes out, gets a giant army duffel bag, puts it on his shoulder and carries it into the bank. (laughs) And he says, we just wanted you to see that. And he said, what's that? He said, that's a drug deposit. There's right. probably three or four million bucks in there, maybe five. And he's mm-hmm. just taking the bank, and they're going to help him launder it. And I said, well, how are these bankers not in jail? He said, oh, we don't even – too. we have too much going on in this town. If we arrested every banker, there wouldn't be banks in Miami. Wow. And so –
2: that's where it was in that era. And uh, then the, then we had money laundering laws that came into effect that changed a lot of that. And, right. And not right. seeing any of that now, but it's, it's the biggest problem for these criminals of how to get the cash back to their countries. Yeah.
1: So then, John, you also ran around, as I remember, with a bunch of other cops. I, I think I remember Frank Salerno. Wasn't that a friend of yours?
2: Well, he was a friend of Gill's, and of Gil's. Uh, yeah. I met Salerno, and uh, and uh, Finnegan was his partner, and they did the hill the hillside strangler case, right? And uh, and uh, Gill was uh, their best friend. Everybody on the sheriff's department, they were sheriff's department homicide were a very excellent group of investigators, and uh, they got they had some tough cases in this town, uh, and that was one of them. And uh, Salerno's legendary. I mean, and, and Finnegan's retired now, I believe salerno was uh he just had the patience and the time They worked hard uh that movie uh i don't know if that movie ever got made i i know the script that i know they were working on uh um, didn't get made but there may have been some tv knockoff or something that somebody did uh there's uh, gil carrillo carrillo was uh, a younger homicide detective brought in uh that that ran with uh gil and uh and salerno and gil carrillo did the um uh, uh richard ramirez case which oh, was the yes. night stalker the night stalker night
1: stalker
2: <clears throat> case yep yeah. and uh so yeah that, they were um i think the sheriffs and lapd too were open to working with hollywood as well because they wanted to see it done right and they wanted the story told right you know so you worked
0: work. you you worked on but you worked on things that I, I wouldn't think you'd need a consultant for say Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know why in my mind or uh, or or even uh, what's the other marty breast movie that's uh, that's so great? Midnight Run. Midnight Run. <laughs> I wouldn't think that these are comedies you actually work on those movies, right?
2: right? I did. Well, Beverly Hills Cop was interesting because i i hadn't done a lot of Hollywood work up to that time. I did, you know, like the stuff with Floyd that we talked about, but uh, Marty came to me from Paramount because they saw my name in some LexisNexis court case involving a, a, a thing called the switch where products would come into America in cargo containers that had to be in, in uh, bonded warehouses before they could be released. And then similar products would come into the same warehouse on the same night in similar boxes that came from Kansas City, for instance, one came from Afghanistan and one came from Kansas City. And the and the Kansas City one was filled with Korans, and the one from Afghanistan was filled with hashish. Oh, um, right. Yeah. So and then we and then during the night in the facility, the airline facility, they would switch tags on the cargo. And right. so the so that night when customs is not on duty at the airport, the the uh, so-called now domestic product. Would go out the door and the uh, foreign product would stay in the cargo warehouse so they did the switch got the dope out of the out of the place so i worked on a case like that at lax and put a bunch of employees in jail so they read about that and they came over that was one question they wanted to know how they can incorporate that into the movie and then two they were interested in my opinion they said they were going to have uh, i think they said sylvester stallone was going to play he was, he was the first Person they. Tried yeah,
0: I, that's right. Stallone was supposed to be Beverly Hills Cop, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Right, and then but they said we're uh, and, and Marty Brest came to the airport with some Paramount people, and I think Wayland Green was there too. Well, uh, the writer. Yeah, Wally Green, screenwriter. Uh, Wally, I'm sorry, and uh, and they uh, they said we really want to know. We really want to know. We're gonna we're thinking we're gonna use Eddie Murphy in this film. Is it possible for a black Detroit cop to come to Los Angeles International Airport and badge his way into the customs warehouse. And I said, "Yes." <laughs> yeah. And they it. But they it were concerned about that because at that were, time, yeah. they were concerned about that because they didn't want to say have the audience go, "This is not believable. This yeah. guy couldn't do that," you know. And so I took Marty, just Marty, the two of us over to a, a particular airline I won't name it, and I badged the kid behind the counter. and said, have your supervisor come here. Federal narcotics, we got to go check for some cargo in the bonded warehouse. He said, yes, sir. And uh, man, and the manager came out. And I didn't even have to show him my ID again. I mean, I would have, you know, but I didn't yeah. have to. And I said, we need to go in and just to make sure there's not a particular uh, product in there uh, that we think is on the loose. And yes, sir. And he, you know, he came with us. He didn't let us roam around in there. Sure. But we were in there, and we're looking around, and then we left. And then um, I remember there was a kid back in the corner out front again when we got out front into the main office. There was a kid in the corner. And uh, so I just I went one step further. I said, hey, can we look at the airway bills just to make sure that are in that customs warehouse right now? And, uh, of course, the manager told the kid, he says, uh, he says, get the cut, get the airway bills for these gentlemen. <laughs> And the kid looked at me and I don't know what it was. I saw this red Porsche when I came in there into the parking lot. And I thought that red Porsche is an employee parking lot there. Yeah, That's not right. It's not right for the kind of money these people make. Right. It was a, it was a career, you know, was... so the kid, the kid said to me, he said, well, who are you guys? Do you have a right to Now his managers right there? telling him to do it. He says, who are you guys? And do you have a right to, uh, to look at this stuff? And I said, you know who we are. And I said is that your red Porsche out there? And the kid put his head down. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I said, don't worry, I'm not going to call IRS tomorrow.
0: <laughs>
2: well, if any of you saw Beverly Hills Cop, you saw that scene in Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's how sometimes it works, not always.
0: But <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was well, a fish, and I for, as you talk about it, I realize that there's a sort of, a fish out of water story in Beverly Hills Cop, right? Which yes. is he's he sees himself as a real cop, right? Right. Put in uh, this very soft crowd of uh, Beverly Hills Police uh, Department, right? Right. Yeah, I, I can see where. The more you talk about it, the more I could see where it would be important to have that authenticity in that movie. Otherwise, it's not going to be as funny, probably. You right. know,
2: and he, I knew it would. I knew that. You know, I knew just enough about Eddie Murphy. Not, I never worked with him or anything, but just from watching him, that he he could pull that off, you know, yeah. and, and there were in the LAPD and the LA sheriffs, there were plenty of, uh, black and Hispanic people that could go in there and do the same thing. So why yeah, couldn't sure. Eddie Murphy do it? Sure. Know? Sure.
1: Yeah. So you also ended up, I think I may be wrong about this, but did you consult with Michael Mann at all on last of the Mohicans?
2: No, I didn't, okay. but I was, I was around him when we were doing, Michael was producing Drug Wars, the Camarena story. Right. At the same time, he was in pre-production oh, yeah. and then production That's on, right. on uh, Last of the Mohicans. So we, you know, we were in the same room all the time. Uh, one thing about Last of the Mohicans that Michael did, he was, he was just such a professional and he was such, uh, I'll give you a good example. He, I'm, I got, I think a, I got out of the wisconsin with maybe a 3.1 average and only because i took a lot of easy courses at the end you know (laughs) otherwise I would have been (laughs) a lot lower but mike calls up one day and says hey did you read last of the mohicans and i say yeah in high school i think i did read it and he says well he says you still have the book i said yeah i do he says well read it this weekend and get back to me i mean he wanted me to read last of the mohicans and after I read it, he sent me a script, and he wanted me to read the script. And uh, I thought it was, you know, I mean, it, it was pure Michael.
1: So uh, John, what, what people don't understand is that gradually, over time of consulting for people, you also began to write screenplays. And you wrote, actually, a lot of scripts. You wrote a lot of treatments. You, re- right. you made notes on other people's screenplays that got yeah. incorporated before they shot both television and, thing, oh, television. Didn't you, uh, weren't you deeply involved in a Fox television series once? Do I re- remember that?
2: Uh, there were actually, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I think there were a few. There was a, a, one initially called DEA, and it only lasted for 13 weeks, so I, I'm not going to take a lot of credit for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there was uh, another one that we did. Uh, are you thinking of the more more recent one was called, uh Oh, no. I was with Sean Daniel. Yeah, and Jim Yeah. Matt. Yeah. Uh, Graceland, they call Graceland, it. Graceland. Like, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So that was for three years and I w I wasn't a writer on it, but I was a, an advisor and it was actually, it came from an idea of mine about, uh, putting a bunch of task force agents in a seized Malibu beach house <laughs> <laughs> and, and working out of there. And, uh, so that was fun. Uh, I liked, um, I think one of the things that, uh, that you that, that you did which was um, tequila sunrise and blow i think this would be a good example bill in blow the main the main character in tequila sunrise was played by mel gibson and he was a manhattan beach california crook who smuggled cocaine and he, he was based on that person and so tom produced tequila sunrise years later there was a movie called blow yeah i
0: remember and- it yeah
2: and Ted Deme was the director the late Ted Demi, a wonderful human being yeah. and he they did again they were doing research on on blow and they saw my name connected to this guy in Manhattan Beach so they reached out to me and they sent me the script and he wanted me to read the script and make notes and I did and I made very good notes sent it back right away typically heard nothing one day they call me in. he's got the whole production office there and grill me for like a day and a half and uh it was wonderful because i was able to help them i knew the story cold i lived the story part of it i lived the la part of the story and uh i was able to help them and it it made me feel good when i saw the movie because it was pretty realistic
1: sure and on tequila sunrise because so can we talk about that particular drug dealer who's a public figure sure and uh if you don't mind using his name and talk a little bit about that interaction and yeah, uh I, what you what he was what was his nickname
2: uh well uh uh richie was his name uh oh i he probably had many i, I don't recall tom
1: yeah was he was it richie ross was that his name
2: no no that was that was someone else that's,
1: some, that's <laughs> another drug dealer
2: that's another big de- dealer. Yeah,
1: that was Just, freeway that, Ricky I, ross okay yeah I that was it.
2: freeway rick um but <laughs> This particular guy's passed away now. He died in Mexico. He was uh, haircutter, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he was a tonsorial parlor. He cut hair. But he was, a, he was an Italian kid from Massachusetts. He, had nice, you know, he was a very smart and very sharp businessman. And he just came out here and started this um, tonsorial parlor in Manhattan Beach. And uh, he went on to, uh, to, to run marijuana first and then cocaine. And he became one of Pablo Escobar's main uh, distributors of cocaine in the early days, when Pablo was still basically nobody.
1: Right. And as I remember, Richie and I, without using names, let's just say that I knew some directors and some writers of some stature, (laughs) an occasional star, who uh, counted Richie's phone number on their cell phones with uh, on their dial-up you know uh right. he was really servicing the west side of Hollywood that's for sure
2: right and what it, it grew from that from Tequila Sunrise from the Tequila Sunrise story it grew from like a a good violator a good you know kilo multi-kilo person literally Tom once he met Pablo Escobar uh it grew to hundreds of kilos at a time Wow. And he, was, he was delivering hundreds of kilos to Jesus. Hollywood and uh, it was before our money laundering laws were in effect. And so a lot of what he got away with then he wouldn't have got away with later. And subsequently he got arrested when he was at the airport one day and I was there with my partner and uh, on unrelated business. And we saw him with a man that appeared to be Colombian going and the man was taking a flight to Miami and as a result uh richie knew me so he saw me and he kind of panicked i could see the panic and so i knew the the man he was seeing off was important my partner went to the gate and found out who he was and richie and i talked and uh like we always talk we would see each other in manhattan beach and talk and you know he knew who i was i knew who he was you know so what happened was we called miami that day and they got six hundred thousand dollars out of a suitcase from the And that was Richie's payment to him for one of Pablo Escobar's loads. That was the overt act that put Richie in jail after all these years.
1: Wow. So, John, as I remember, you had um, very fancy offices at LAX. (laughs) Over time. (laughs) (laughs) When I first saw you guys, you were in a double-wide trailer, weren't you? That's right.
2: (laughs) Actually, that was one of our nicest offices. (laughs) In fact, uh, a, a cute anecdote, Jerry Brown, the governor, yeah. he, before, I think he used to come and park his car in there and he'd come, always, he was very polite. He'd always come in and say, John, is it okay if I park my car here for the weekend? I, you know, I'm going up to, and he had no no security, no anybody. Yeah, sure, sure, Gov go ahead, park your car there. And eventually we got nice office spaces in, uh, at LAX. <laughs>
1: oh, man. Well, I, I loved it that you were kind of um, on the fly. You know, there was no. a sense that the task force would make things happen at LAX. I also remember once you s- I said, what are you doing, John? Let's go have lunch. And you said, no, I can't. I'm watching a Ferrari. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing watching? He said, well, there's a Ferrari here that I've got to watch. And uh, it uh, was sent in, and it's going to be picked up by the son of a Saudi Arabian prince. And right. I said, yeah. And what's interesting about that Ferrari? It
2: was loaded.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Filled yeah. with
2: cocaine.
1: Yeah. yeah. Filled with cocaine. Ferrari stuffed with cocaine. Really? Sent right. in.
0: Is there any other kind of Ferrari? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, Those brilliant. are the kind of things that happened out there, you know, and you know, but the task force was a wonderful concept, and I have to give credit to LAPD and the sheriffs and to DEA for coming up with that concept and we it ran for it ran really until 9/11. Uh, Tom knows very well that there was a script that I helped uh, write called Common Ground that has yet to be made too about LAX. Actually, I uh,
0: want to get into that because I find find anything that's really, you think that's the perfect movie, I can't wait to see that, and it doesn't get made. I find that strange about Hollywood. And, And yet there are dozens and dozens of these, aren't there? Tell me about Common Ground.
1: Well, Common Ground came into my life through John and Floyd Mutrix, who worked on it together and wrote it together. And Common Ground was a name... Or a section of ground literally at lax um, john do you want to explain
2: that sure basically it's the uh, the west side of the airport where they had uh in the day uh in the 70s and or 80s there were say hundred thousand dollar homes up on the hill overlooking the ocean well because of the noise of the new jets they uh, did an eminent domain and seized all those homes and plowed them all under but it's an eerie kind of a look. It's still got the concrete streets are still there, now overgrown with grass, and um, yeah. uh, and so you see the subdivision like on the uh, on the on the west side of the, of the airport that's vacant. And we came up, well, Floyd and I came up with the idea that our, our movie might begin and end there, uh, on something we call oh. Common Ground. The, the short version is Floyd and I worked on it, and it was an idea that I had, and it was about sort of loosely based on our task force at LAX. And well, I mean, it was the task force, but of course it was a, a drama and it, 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 it involved a, a criminal that was a masterful criminal that was going to take down the federal reserve, uh, uh, uh sh- a federal reserve money shipment. Right. And uh, without going into that detail, it was a wonderful story. And again, it was about, uh, how smart this guy was, and how he knew the airport cold, and of course our hero in the in the in the piece ran the task force, and he was just as smart. And it you know culminated at LAX with a big closing scene, and they blew up the the old tower that was there. You know? Yeah. And uh, Tom Tom saw the beauty. You know, it was it was just a fun action movie, and uh, Tom saw the value in it, and took it to Paramount I believe and right. they were backing it <clears throat> now you know the rest of the story better than I do
1: <laughs> well what was terrific about that movie was the script was great yeah and as a result we got Billy Friedkin who's a terrific director of action pictures right. you know um, uh, to uh, attach himself as a director and then we went to John Drolta to yeah. play the role of John Marcello right and so Travolta said yes, and we began to have a package together, and then we started budgeting the picture. And you remember, John, that, that um, Bill Gilmore was my line guy, and right. Bill went to work on the budget. Bill had done a million movies. He was also the line guy on Midnight Run, I should say, line producer. Okay. And um, ultimately, this movie was going to cost, by the time we did it the way... Director wanted to do it, which was the full bore version. In those days, this was a lot of money. It was about fifty-eight million dollars. Yeah, a lot of money in that moment. Mm -hmm. Paramount wanted to spend thirty-five million dollars. I had worked with Billy Friedkin before. Uh, We co-financed *The Sorcerer*, a remake of *Wages of Fear*. Boy, do I love that movie! Yeah, and that's such. If you've never
0: seen, if you've never seen *The Sorcerer*. Must go see it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible film. But yes, go ahead.
1: So in any event, um, and bi- but Billy, I got to say, had a hair-triggered temper. On the sorcerer, we had a preview, very bad preview with the director's cut, because the director's cut was so long. And the then uh, senior administrative executor of Universal was a man named Sid Sheinberg. He was at that screening. And as Billy was at the screening, and it didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. And Billy came out in the lobby, and Sid was standing there. And Sid went over to Billy and started wagging his finger in Billy's face, yeah. and said, "You're going to have to cut 30 minutes out of this movie." And I'm telling you, we are, and we this, and we that. At which point, Billy Friedkin turned around, looked around at the room, cold cocked Sid Sheinberg, and walked off. Wow! And, and, I like nobody, that. and nobody said a word. I love And everybody's that. like, Sid <laughs> couldn't believe that somebody had actually hit him. And Sid was a big guy, yeah. you know, and and this did not <laughs> warm everybody's heart at Universal to Billy as long as Sid was there. Well, it's
0: also one of those movies that, uh, you know, there, there are no women in it. It has like five lines of dialogue. It's basically a truck full of uh, 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 nitroglycerin, yeah. a bunch of trucks full of nitroglycerin or something That's making right. their way across. Uh, it's just, it's, it's hair-raising, but it's not a, a kind of movie that... It's hard to get behind that movie if you're probably an ex- uh, a movie executive, I would guess. So
1: now John and Floyd are suffering through the fact that they have a great script and we have a great director for it. Billy really understood Common Ground and loved it and loved the sense of humor the guys had baked into it even though it was a very serious mm-hmm. action picture. And we had a star who also loved it and who Paramount was excited about. We just had this huge budget gap. And we had another problem that I hadn't counted on as a problem, and that is that Billy Friedgen was married to Sherry Lansing, right. who was then president of Paramount, running the place.
0: You would think that would be a good thing?
1: Well, no. Uh, you know, The kind of intramural politics of a studio mm. are always about the blame game. Oh. And so inside a studio, people are constantly looking. If there's going to be a failure, they want to know who to pin it on, and they want to have some people to pin it on. And if there's going to be a success, people that never heard of the movie take that credit. Sure. So this <laughs> is very much like uh, using Sid Sheinberg's, like very much like Sid Sheinberg claiming credit for E.T., a movie which he said to me, We're not making this movie because it'll only be popular with children. <laughs> <laughs> and so I fine. Okay. Take all the take all the credit you want. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and so now we find ourselves in a mess because we can't get the picture launched and right. paramount owns the damn thing because they've paid everybody right and mount companies so they're not going to make it and they're not going to let it go that's right and so i go to them and start trying to pry it loose and i oh. spend what maybe two years trying to pry it loose to no effect to no avail script's too good to let go and worse than that Somebody else might make it and have a hit.
0: That's exactly right. You can't have that happen. Better to let it die on the vine, right? Yep.
1: Better to bury it somewhere. Wow. So, John, you eventually retired from the DEA. When you retired, as I remember, you were were in charge of a lot of wire activity, weren't you?
2: (laughs) Yeah, for one year, right? My last year, I was the uh, supervisor of what we called the wire room. I mean, it's the electronic surveillance intercept room or whatever they call it now. Today, they probably have a fancier name, but basically, we, uh, we did wiretaps, and uh, uh, the guys there were terrific, and it was an era. It was sort of the new era. You know, it wasn't my era. My era was uh, like when I first worked undercover, Bill, uh, Joe Moody, an old buddy of mine who ran the prison, prison task force. He taught me everything I needed to know about buying dope. Yeah. And he said, I said, Joe, what do you do? And he says, You take some money and you go meet the crook and you say, Here's the money, give me the dope. And it <laughs> happens and you walk away and we'll do the rest.
0: So it was pretty <laughs> so, simple. It's simpler back then. You're saying. Yeah,
2: it similar back then. Yeah. So anyway, it was like that uh, uh, in the wire room. The wire room was a whole different concept and it was. Uh, basically uh, very interesting for me to be able to be that supervisor for the last year and see where the direction that law enforcement was going. And we, we really had a, a great group of uh, young men and women that worked in that, in that, uh, in that room and did some good work. No, no,
0: no, wait a second. This is a room full of – I mean, I'm sure that there are things you can't talk about here, but I'll, I'll just plow ahead. Right. This is a room full of people right. listening 24 right. hours a day. Am I Right. right right shift work It's like 24 hours a day. They're listening to drug dealers, politicians, uh, businessmen.
2: Well, we weren't so much, unless they were dealing dope, we weren't so much into the, to that, the politicians of the business. We, you know, our things were mostly Mexican and Colombian major traffickers talking to their associates here. Uh, and we had a room, the room wasn't, they weren't all special agents. We had contract employees right that that spoke the languages and listened but we had agents supervising every shift so if anything hot came up over the wire that needed immediate action we had agents there that could pick up a phone and we had lapd and sheriffs and other agencies working with us so if we needed to put 10 guys on the street right now that ship that supervisor of that shift could get the get those guys out there.
0: I always wonder, go ahead, go ahead, finish your thought. I'm sorry. No, was just
2: just that we worked that we worked at 24 hours and it was a lot of work and uh, is, a lot is, of work.
0: As you're listening and all of a sudden somebody starts speak, speaking Portuguese, right. Arabic, something. Do you, do you immediately go, oh hell, we've got to find some so-and-so somewhere fast or, I mean, how does that right. work?
2: Well, without going into the, a lot of detail, we had assets that could speak probably every language in the world. And we would have to go back to uh, a place. I'm not going to name the state or the location Okay. where they had a room full of people and they had phone numbers of everybody they could call instantaneously Yeah. and get that back to us in like 15 minutes, you know? So it was, uh, it was a good situation and it was an expensive situation yeah and uh, so, John, i'm glad i did that at the end that's <clears throat> fascinating.
1: I, I, I want to wind out here in a minute because we're about to run out of time but i need to hit two things before we go one is i want you to explain what red rum means and what that project was
2: well that's how uh, it's actually how i first met Gil Parra because uh there was a there were a lot of murders down in miami and new york l.a bogota in the 70s, in the late 70s, when the right. Colombian, the Colombians decided, uh, we're no longer just going to sell this dope to uh, Americans and let them distribute it. We're going to distribute it ourselves. Right. And I remember. as a result, they sent soldiers up there. Like in Miami, they had Cuban Traffickers, they had Colombian traffickers. Those people fought all the time, killed each other. So Scarface. the short story is r- red rum is murder spelled backwards. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they, de- the DEA designated uh, an agent in every office, every major field office to be the coordinator of the red rum program to coordinate with the local police officers, homicide people. So when they get a homicide that looks like it's drug related, we'll get all that intelligence into the computer systems and share it in Bogota, New York, Miami, L.A. And I happened to be the guy that had that additional duty in Los Angeles, and that's how I met Gil Parra, the homicide investigator. Right.
1: And thank you for closing that loop and explaining that to people, and that is its own movie. Bill, talking about unmade movies, the Red Rum Project. Call it Red Rum. Like The
0: Shining. Wasn't it The Shining where they said Red Rum all the time?
1: Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So then, John you retired from the DEA and you went immediately and opened a private investigation agency, which you're currently doing. It's called Phoenix. And um, you do a lot of things for a lot of people. We're not going to go into much of that detail, since you can't do that. But we can go into one story, because it's a story I got involved in. Um, Without naming the company, let's say that there was a prominent um, entertainment company in Los Angeles, which I was task with selling on behalf of the owners. And to do that I had to, among other things, do an accounting, a forensic accounting of the company. When I did that I discovered that uh, in the company two or three of the very senior officers of the company had embezzled many millions of dollars. Gone. Unaccounted for. And in particular the general counsel For the company, the senior legal advisor for the company, had taken out, I don't know, John, five or six million dollars in the space of about two years. And he was living in a very nice house up in Bel Air with his wife and family. And he was a well-known figure in the entertainment industry. And I had to bring this to closure somehow. So John, and who did you bring with you, John? You brought a partner.
2: I, I brought a, I I knew I was going to need an IRS agent, so I I bought I brought one of my friends that worked major narcotics uh, cases with us, an IRS agent that worked those cases, and he was retired as well, had a PI license, so I brought him, and the two of us uh, met with Tom, got briefed, and then Tom, tell him what happened after that. <laughs> well,
1: so I. I... I had already talked to the management of the people that owned the company, and they said, look, do everything you can to get some of this money back. Because all this money had gone out the door. So John had an idea, and he said, let's do this. Let's take the conference room at the company, and let's invite the general counsel to come in and talk to us. Because I think we've got a proposal that might work. the guy's a lawyer, and he's not just a lawyer, he's a well-known lawyer in the business, so we take a conference room, and it's John and his IRS agent and myself on one side of the table, and we bring in our general counsel on the other side of the table. And John said, and I, John, I'm going to paraphrase you. If I'm doing this wrong, please just rewrite me. Okay. John said, you know, you're a really, really well-respected attorney. You've got a long history of practicing law. I suspect you wouldn't want to lose your ability to practice. He said, you've also got a nice house. By this time, John and his team had done their research. Your house is worth, whatever, two and a half, three million dollars, some number like that. And so then we're in this problem. There's this money that's missing, and here's all the paperwork that supports it. (laughs) And all of this has flowed into your office and then ultimately into your bank. And so we're about to go to the DA with all this. But what we'd like to do is see if we can find a way to recapture as much of this money as possible. So the guy's freaking out. First he says, oh, I didn't do it. Uh, Remember John, he said, I thought it was a bonus. I thought it was a gift. People left cash on my desk. And I just uh, took the cash home, put it in the bank. Well, you know, somebody leaves $5 million on your desk, even over a period <laughs> of a year, you, you, what a normal person would ask, what well, is yeah. this? You would question that, I you think. You would yeah. question that, yeah. you know. <laughs> and so John said, listen, he said, we don't have a lot of time. We're going to have to go to the district attorney today. So then now the guy turns bright red. He's really panicked. And John said, so here's what we're going to do. We've got a document here that you can sign, I want you to quit claim the right to your house back to this company and we'll sell the house and recapture some of the money you've taken. And the guy goes, oh, I can't do that. What am I going to say? my wife and my things? And then, if we were really planning your future, you'd be better off somewhere other than the US. (laughs) And the guy said, oh, what am I, and then John said, and I'm going to give you an hour. Because in one hour, we are going to the district attorney, who will find this story really interesting. And the guy ran out of the room. And 40 minutes later, John, he came back in a room with a signed document, (laughs) turned his house over to the company, scooped up his wife and kids, and moved to France. Wow. <laughs> and we got about $3 million of the $5 million back.
2: What do we say, Tom? Case closed? Case
1: closed. <laughs> <laughs> so I would just say anybody out there needs a private eye, and I've used John's company many oh. times since. They're a wonderful PI organization. They do all sorts of cool things and, uh, and helped me with some help from an FBI um, a uh, digital investigator recently helped me in a case in which uh, someone had forged documents and presented them to the court and John said I know who can figure out that that's forged and they did and you know it's a skill set that I just don't have in my day to day life <laughs> so Bill I, when, you, when someone decides that they're ripping you off in some amazing way or some of your friends get right taken advantage of, I say call Phoenix. Have first. him on
0: speed dial, exactly right. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I knew that uh, John was was cool when, when I, um, it's just a callback, when he said that Michael Mann called him and said, read uh, the, the old James Fenimore Cooper uh, novel, I'm going to uh, do Last of the Mohicans. Obviously, it tells you a little bit about this business. At a certain point, you start out consulting how to do drug busts, and, the, and then eventually you go like, well, this guy has great instincts. I'm going to ask him about a Western I'm about to make. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So that's a, that, I think, speaks very well of you, and I just wanted to thank you for, unless there's anything further, I, think- I wanted to thank you, John uh, Marcella, for being with us today. That was, uh, that was terrific.
2: It's my pleasure, Bill and Tom. Always, you know, I, I appreciate the opportunity, and thank you very much. And If I can do anything else for you, let me know.
0: All well, right,
1: John. I think I think they can, and uh, we are very, very happy to
0: have. I'm you. thinking of things you could do for me now. I'm just it's going. Through, I'm going. I'm going through them mentally.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and we're very happy to have you with us uh, virtually here in beautiful downtown Rancho Mirage. Exactly. And uh,
0: Bill. Until next time, I'll remind you that's our show for today. There are no uh, shortcuts in showbiz, but there are many, many detours, as we have seen. This is Bill Getty with Tom
2: Mount, advising you to take Fountain.